0: we tell kids, be creative, learn new things. We stop that language with adults at like age 16, 17, but everyone in this room is going to have to be creative and learn new things in a climate changed future.
1: You know, the the ocean is absorbing almost 100% of the the heat that the climate system is absorbing. The temperature of the atmosphere is ultimately controlled by the ocean. And so the rate of warming in the atmosphere is controlled by the rate really at at which the ocean warms.
2: Yes, there's got to be big technological changes. Yes, there's got to be big government policy shifts. And in the meantime, I don't want to really wait for those people to do that work. You know, so what can I do? That's the number one question I get. It's
3: not about lift upgrades. It's not about growth or the Olympics. It's, it's about climate.
1: And I think it is an exciting time to be alive, actually, because our, our decisions really do matter a lot.
4: Hey, now, Mountain
1: Crew. This
4: episode of the Mountain Works podcast was recorded live at the Mountain Works Assembly, which was part of the 2022 Mountain Works Conference in Bend, Oregon. About 450 ski area employees from throughout the Northwest and even beyond were in attendance. And for the first time ever at the Mountain Works Assembly, the entire ski area roster top to bottom was in the same room having conversations that touch everybody and include everybody. The three themes of the day were a little bit of history lessons, looking back at the legacy of Northwest ski areas, the legacy that is currently being inherited by a whole new generation of leaders in the ski industry. Another theme was really what we look like now. What's the current makeup of the workforce in the ski industry? And the third theme was Okay, if we're inheriting this legacy, what are we going to do with it? It's not ours. It's just our turn. And when we look at it that way, that means we have to have big conversations about global weirding, career choices, the economy, training. These were some really big picture topics with a whole slew of experts on the stage. We really do think you're going to enjoy these next few episodes of the Mountain Works podcast, created by and for ski area employees in the Northwest. Crew. I'm Jordan Elliott, and I'm going to be honest with you. I'm having a hard time even coming up with what the intro of this episode should be. Having a hard time limiting myself to the poll quotes that you just heard up front there, because this panel discussion that we recorded at the Mountain Works Assembly was so chock full uh, of just good information. Uh, it's just hard not to include it all, but well, I guess that's what we're doing because you're going to hear the whole conversation. Ah, uh, I can't resist. I'm going to put in one more.
0: And it's about water. The waters that are bubbling up along the the Pacific edge of North America, the waters that are upwelling into this um, coastal ecosystem, those waters are about a thousand years old, meaning that they haven't seen the atmosphere in a thousand
4: years. You might be asking yourself, why is this important? We are talking about operating ski areas, right? And now here's this guy talking about the ocean and got a whole bunch of other people talking about it. Well, here's why. And you've probably heard me say this on the Tiny Crystals Global Impact episode. If you've run into me in person, you've probably heard me say this. I think the Pacific Northwest ski areas are very uniquely positioned to talk about ocean health as it relates to climate change, ocean health as it relates to snowpack. We are better positioned to do that than anybody else in the country because We are the Pacific Northwest ski areas, right? The Pacific, let's put the Pacific Ocean back into that statement. The Pacific Ocean touches the base of our mountains. It is the generator of the snow cycle in many ways in North America. Weather moves west to east, right? And that Pacific Ocean is the original piece of snowmaking equipment. And we kind of broke it. Or in the least, we're making it work way too much over time. You'll hear more about that in this episode. But I want to talk about it. And it took, you know, a whole year, probably, leading up to that 2022 conference of speaking with people in the science community, speaking with ski area operators, really trying to find the right mix of people who had the knowledge base and the passion to, to speak of it in this way, because I think our advocacy could really be meaningful When we really take into account ocean health as it relates to our snowpack and not just our snowpack, but our workforce also. You heard me talk about that and Damon Runberg in our water workforce episode. And that's a conversation we're continuing. If a ski area operator in charge of staffing, in charge of seasonal workforces, also pays attention to the health of the summer seasonal job that relates to the water that your ski patroller is probably doing, that your ski instructor your lift operators, your rental techs, F&B, whatever, there are people who work on the water. And if we also advocate for healthy ecosystems and healthy jobs when they're away from the ski area, well, that is more balanced year-round employment uh, with a seasonal switch to it, right? That enables those people to come back and work at your ski area, to go back the next summer, work somewhere on the water, come back and forth and just really be part of the water workforce. I think it's amazing. And the advocacy efforts that we can put towards that it's just going to benefit everything. since this was recorded back in April of 2022, well, there was some federal legislation that was passed uh, in the infrastructure bill that had a lot of carbon reduction components to it. So you heard us talk a little bit about that and then what do you know? over the summer, we had some some wins there with the Inflation Reduction Act, where we're thinking that total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 should be about 40% lower than what they were in 2005. That's a big deal. That's producing 1.26 billion less tons, less carbon pollution than we otherwise would have uh, without this legislation. I don't think it's the end game. I think there's still plenty of work to do, which this conversation uh, is going to key into here in the episode. But go ahead and send a thank you letter or a phone call. To your legislators, to your representatives in Oregon, uh, people that help make that happen are Susan Bonamici, Earl Blumenauer, Peter DeFazio, Kurt Schrader, Jeff Merkley, Ron Wyden. In Washington, Susan DelBain, Rick Larson, Derek Kilmer, Primal Jayapal, Kim Schreer, Adam Smith, Marilyn Strickland, Maria Cantwell, and Patty Murray. Thanks, everyone. All right, all right, all right. Let's move on with it and play this audio file. On the stage, this panel... At the Mountain Works Assembly in April of 2022, our wonderful MC Shannon Kelly in Bend, Oregon, wrangling this whole panel, keeping everybody in line and handling the Q&A at the end. Such a great job. We love Shannon. Also on the stage, the amazing Dr. Sarah Myrie, who is the Program Director for Climate Advocacy and Democracy Reform at the Glasser Progress Foundation in Seattle. Our favorite, Gwyn Howitt, CEO of Mount Baker Ski Area up in the borderlands of Washington. Nicholas Seiler, assistant climatologist for the state of Oregon and professor at Oregon State University. And of course, Adrian Saya Isaac from the National Ski Areas Association. Such a cool group. Let's just dive on in. I'll see you on the other side.
5: Hello and welcome, thank you all for being here. So I know that we've given very brief introductions, but I would love to actually have each of you give a little further context around your work, introduce yourselves. I would like to start with Dr. Sarah, you do a really beautiful, uh, you set a good example for orienting us to place, so I wonder if you might start and then we'll come to Nick and Gwen and then we'll finish with you, Adrian, okay
0: amazing. Um, Hi, everybody. I am really thrilled to be here. Um, My kid is here as well. So um, they're reading comic books and trying to ignore me. I'm honestly just so stoked to talk to you all today. Um, So I'm a fifth generation Washingtonian. I am a lifelong skier. So I skied at Mount Baker with my parents. In the middle, you know, the middle eighties through the nineties. I'm now skiing there with my kid. I also was a raft guide in Washington for uh, seven years. I worked on um, the water as a scuba instructor. I then got my PhD in climate and ocean science. And now I work in the space around climate advocacy and democracy reform. Think about the, um, the moment in time and how to meet it, both with advocacy and money and um, all the tools that we have collectively through solidarity. So it's amazing to be here to see all all of you. I actually, even though I'm like dressed up, I I literally took my overalls off to prepare for the stage. So it's it's great to be among people that I really feel like I have so much in common with. So thanks for having me. Thanks,
1: Sarah. Yeah, my name is Nick Seiler. Um, I'm a professor at Oregon State. Uh, I'm part of the College of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences at at the Corvallis campus. Um, I'm also, as of April 1st, the assistant state climatologist for the state of Oregon. Um, One of my first activities, I guess, in that role, I spent the first two weeks of April um, at home with COVID, so um, I'm better, tested negative two days ago. Um, Actually, like Sarah, I don't think we've talked about this, I'm also a fifth generation Washingtonian, but I'm now an Oregonian and um, have a a few kids and um, we ski frequently, we had season passes at Hoodoo, this year, I um, got a lot of spring skiing in in January. I care deeply about, about skiing and the outdoors. It's something that I have, my wife and I have both really tried hard to instill that sort of love in our kids. And, and therefore, I care deeply about the future of the ski industry as well. So excited to be here um, and to participate in it. Thanks, Nick.
2: All right, hello, everyone. Um, I'm Gwen Howitt, and I'm from Mount Baker Ski Area. And I was born and raised in the mountains. Literally, I was born at White Pass, Washington, and then uh, our family came to Mount Baker in 1968. And I've had the luxury, I would say, and the privilege of living a life amongst the snow. Uh, however, I will say that now that the mountains have become, I guess you would say, my work, the water is my wilderness. And so I spend a lot of time on the ocean, and uh, that's, my, that's my away space. I think I've seen, unfortunately, too many people die in the back country, so it's a little scary for me now. But anyway, I wanted to thank Jordan. Uh, on this one because, um, you know, it's, it's, and I appreciate all of you being here today because uh, this is a bit of a, uh, it's a hard subject, you know, to talk about climate and it does not escape me that I've lived in a time when I fished the San Juan Islands and you could catch as many salmon as you want. And now, you know, they're pretty much gone. And at Mount Baker, which where we get the most snow of any scary in the world, for those of you that don't know, fortunately, we're still seeing good, consistent snow patterns and all of that. But I've noticed a change in the wind. And I can say that there's also a change in the trees. And we have some beautiful old-growth trees up there. And uh, I'm seeing a shift in all of that. So uh, that concerns me, but I also have a huge amount of hope. And today, uh, what I appreciate also is Sarah cold called me a couple years ago, and she um, was formerly with the University of Washington Future of Ice Initiative. And just that name caught my attention, (laughs) right? Because there's a reality to the sustainability of the mountains and never mind the ski and snowboard industry, which certainly will affect all of us personally but the implications of how the mountains affect the planet and the world are profound. And it also doesn't escape me that, um, you know, I just call it straight out here, we're 100% off the grid at Mount Baker. Uh, those diesel, uh, the snow cats run on diesel that we all drive to the mountains uh, to do our work. And so how can we reconcile and start to be part of this positive shift right? And not just rely on, yes, there's got to be big technological changes. Yes, there's got to be big government policy shifts. And in the meantime, I don't want to really wait for those people to do that work. Um, You know, so what can I do? What can we do in the reality of decision making on day to day? You know, yep, I've been in a snowcat. You have to step out to pee or go get some coffee. Are you going to shut it off for a minute? you going to keep running? Does that really matter? Where do we go with this all? So anyway, I appreciate the work that we actually have some of the nation, if not the world's, finest scientists here to talk about what it is, what is affecting climate, what can we do, and how can we in our day-to-day in the mountains at least feel not so guilty and or be a positive part of what goes on. It's huge. Thank you, Glenn.
5: Okay, Adrian. Yeah. <laughs> Hi,
3: uh, I'm Adrian. I'm the Director of Marketing and Communications at the National Ski Areas Association. I grew up in Pennsylvania, which is not known for its natural snow these days. Um, and skied out there. Uh, and prior to my time at NSAA, I worked at a ski area in Colorado and I'll that's where I became a climate advocate. That's where like all of the things started to click about how everything plays together. I think I can talk about that a little bit more when we get to my part, but every little thing we do, you know, as operators, as individuals, as um, constituents for elected officials, it all makes an impact. We're gonna look at it through one lens today, but it's a lens that's really important. You know, not only did I become a Ski industry person and a climate advocate at the ski area, but I also learned to love rafting. And um, I did not, I am not, I do not work on the river, so I don't count. Uh, unless you count loading and unloading the Groover. I'm really good at that. If anyone's got permits, uh, I'm always happy to help. Uh, but on our first overnight trip, uh, that, or my first overnight trip that I ever took was on Gates of Lador. And right before we were leaving, the flow sucked. It was so low and we were super worried about how we were gonna get through some of the bonier sections. And then all of a sudden, the water got too low and the humpback chub couldn't spawn. And I've never been so excited for this little weird looking fish to have an issue because then they did dam releases, right? And put more water on the river, which made our trip really fun. But more importantly, it it showed how, for one organism, how connected this whole ecosystem is. So without the water coming out of the reservoir, you couldn't have more fish and you couldn't have people recreating. But again, it's all connected. Yeah. Thank you.
2: Can I add to that? Absolutely. I want to give a shout out to Ansel because the organization or the organism, I should say sorry, that we all need to be thinking about in this. And hopefully we all can start to take a little longer view beyond our generation or even the next generation. But I want to give a shout out that my big motivation is for this generation and three beyond that, that we're having this conversation. So thank you for being here. Ansel.
5: So I think that a place, a good place for us to start, and I'll leave it up to who wants to kind of take it first. Is where are we now? Without getting too uh, deep into policy, but like where are we? At, where are we now? What's happening right now? What's what, what needs to be shared to the room with the room?
0: Well, so oftentimes I'm in spaces talking about climate change, and you know it's a tough st- subject, but it is. The reason why we are talking about it is because it's so hard. You know, everyone I know that works in mountain recreation and in ocean recreation does hard stuff, and this also is included in it. And of course, there's a lot of ways that this is kind of divisive amongst political ideologies and realities, right? And and ultimately, regardless of where we all sit in a political space... Or an ideological space, we all still love those beautiful pow turns and we love being on the river and we love catching salmon. And so I think much more unites us than divides us. And I swear to God, I did not get into science to start talking about, you know, climate change because it really does suck. And, you know, I thought I was going to be doing stuff like, you know, measuring corals and going on dives and things like that. So, you know, you don't really anticipate this to be the outcome. But like I said, because it is so hard, we are here talking about it because it relates and it binds us all together through system of values. And I think, you know, because Jordan, you really wanted to talk about like ocean systems and the nature of this planet being derived, you know, an identity of the planet itself as a aquatic planet with fossil fuel gases like the the fossil fuels that are being burned and put into the atmosphere. We're driving um, CO2 and methane into the atmosphere. And it would be fine if the carbon, the oxygen in these these greenhouse gases didn't absorb infrared energy from the sun. This is the real Problem with this whole situation is that these greenhouse gases absorb energy and when they they start vibrating and they hold this heat. And that is what the basic, like that, that's like the very basic level is what happened is happening with climate change. So it's a temp, it's a thermal issue because of these greenhouse gases. But ultimately there's this other issue around living on a carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen planet. Like we are all involved with the carbon system and the nitrogen system because we are carbon, oxygen, nitrogen beings. We breathe in oxygen. We respire carbon. And when we all die, our carbon, oxygen, nitrogen is released into, you know, the world to be reunited with, you know, the plants and the animals, ideally. And so there's this other component of the climate system, which is not about temperature. Of course, temperature drives so much of the phenomenon we see, like the, 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 the heat waves in, um, the, in India right now are are the expression of the, the thermal the temperature crisis, but then there's this other issue around carbon and ocean acidification so Gwen is going to do this. Um kind of uh, walk through this idea that we did uh, years ago on on Mount Baker, talking about particularly the idea of ocean acidification. So when we put carbon into the atmosphere, it doesn't just stay in the atmosphere, it goes into seawater and dissolves and changes some of the very basic composition of seawater.
2: Okay. So this was outside of the Raven Hut when Sarah came to um, visit and um, talking about climate and all that. And um, this was formerly beer, but we're going to use water today. This is not make a beer, beer cup and emulate <laughs> what we were out front. like, so what is, I'm, I'm just learning, right? I'm learning about what is going on with carbon. And so she's like, so why don't you describe here what you taught me? And this is a basic lesson in what we're doing to the ocean.
0: Yeah. So we are with all these industrial activities and land use changes. We are um, we're changing the amount of carbon we're putting in the ocean. So you have the ocean here and a little straw. And of course,
4: I guess I better chime in here and explain a little bit about this science experiment happening on stage. We have a glass of water that represents the ocean and one straw into it. Gwen starts blowing into the straw, representing the ocean carbon emission, the greenhouse gas that goes in and it gets soaked up by the ocean. And then subsequent straws are added into the glass to represent additional greenhouse gases that uh, are created by human activity and put into the ocean.
0: Have the ocean here and a little straw. And of course, naturally, carbon has been moving in and out of seawater through Earth's history. Like this is the carbon maintenance you know valve for the whole atmosphere so it's normal for carbon to go between seawater and the atmosphere and back and forth
2: does um, this relate to the chart that Duran showed earlier you know when the temperature was going at a certain place on the planet and then all of a sudden the industrial revolution it goes whoop, out to become warmer
4: oh hey if you want to see that chart it's actually kind of like a comic strip check out the podcast show notes yeah, totally.
0: So you, you, we chart the industrial evolution by both the changing temperature in the atmosphere and also the changing concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. But those gases, like I said, they don't stay in the atmosphere. Also, Nick, if I say anything inaccurate, you gotta chime in because he's the deputy state climatologist here. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, assistant, shit. <laughs> um, okay, so for you think about these activities and the acidification. So we have one straw that's like natural system right and we're blowing we are we are pushing through natural systems carbon into seawater gwen is blowing bubbles and now here is the fossil fuel industry here is uh, coal-fired power plants here's natural gas here's all of these activities that we are doing to drive just excessive obscene amounts of carbon into seawater and again, it wouldn't be an issue if all of the life in the ocean was particularly um, keyed in to this chemistry for their biology. So, of course, chemistry feels very abstract, but a fish is not abstract and the entire food chain that, that you know, all of these organisms rely on is tied to the chemistry. So then the other part that we did in front of the red hat with the beer cup was thinking about what do we as individuals, as advocates, as industry leaders, as business owners, um, every action, you know, so we turn off the snow cat when we go pee, right? We are um, going up to the hill, but we are carpooling to the hill. We are talking to our elected officials and we are voting. We are thinking about every aspect of our life and through sustainability and efficiency, and we are connecting about climate change with people that we love and care about. So, we are removing those straws from that cup through the actions that we take collectively and individually, and that has a very
4: significant impact. So.
2: And the
4: pH. So if I had brought my the hot tub strip.
2: Yeah so the the, we, livis, yeah, so the the ocean has a certain pH to it. And the more we inject carbon into it, it changes the pH of the ocean, which for those of you who heard about Taylor shellfish, which is two miles down the road from me, the acidification of the ocean now, the oysters cannot set their shell as I think is what you call them is when they're young. So they're having to ship them to Hawaii in a in a in part of the ocean that is less acid less acidified, bring them back to actually raise the oysters. In addition, does that does acidification affect the actual thermal absorption of the ocean as well? Or not so much? I don't
1: think so. Okay, good. No. It's just the animals. It's just it's just lowering just. the pH, just? right? So you pump carbon dioxide in, that's in equilibrium with the carbonic acid. But the animals,
0: <clears throat> Go ahead. I mean, the animals are experiencing acidification and temperature together. So they don't experience, oh, one day is warm and the next day is acidified. No, they experience both those conditions together because that's what the signal is happening within the system. So it's important to think about it as a combined phenomenon.
5: Well, and when we find ourselves in a situation where we have to solve a problem that creates a whole other host of reactions, like shipping those fry out to Hawaii and back, it's not ideal do. Right. No. right, okay. Um, let's talk a bit about, give us a really like basic sixth grade lay of the land and tell us a little more about weather patterns and... Sure. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, so El Nino and La Nina are just opposite phases of this same um, natural variability that really refers to sea surface temperatures in the tropical Pacific. So normally... Warm water is piled up in the western tropical Pacific. That's also where most of the rainfall happens um, within the tropical Pacific. Um, And during an El Nino, the warm water shifts to the east, and it brings the rainfall with it. And so through some atmospheric dynamics that aren't very important, that does affect the jet stream, which then affects our weather here. On along the west coast of North America, but in the Pacific Northwest and, and California in particular. And so, you know, during a La Nina, um, Washington in particular tends to get a bit more rain. Um, California tends to get a bit more rain during El Ninos. But I think it's important to recognize that there's still a lot of just natural chaotic weather that's happening that has nothing to do with El Niño and La Niña, right? And so the way I think about it is, you know, a La Niña weights the dice a little bit more toward a wetter winter, and actually in particular, more of a cooler winter. So the temperature signal is actually the stronger than the precipitation signal. El Ninos tend to be a bit warmer um, and, and sometimes drier, especially in Western Washington. But these are just tendencies, right? And so just because it's a La Nino winter doesn't mean it's going to be cooler and wetter. Just because it's an El Nino doesn't mean it's going to be warmer and, and drier. It's just making it a bit more likely that those things happen. I'll also say that the, the correlations actually tend to be strongest. Um, in the in the late winter and early spring so actually you know around this time of year is when we tend to experience the strongest signal from la nina and that's consistent with what we're observing um, this year
2: i will add that mount baker's world record year was a la nina winter and there wasn't a huge variation in precipitation in general it was just a little bit colder that made that difference and that ended up in 1140 inches of snowfall that winter Wow, three hundred and twenty something in February alone. Wow, sounds cozy.
3: It was a lot of
5: work. (laughs) (laughs) It was so much work. (laughs) It sounds like a lot of work. Do you want to pipe in on the water workforce at this point? Does that
4: feel later this afternoon? Someone will be up on the stage here who's you know a lift office manager and a commercial fisherman. It's it's I just know very much. It's real. When Damon said that this morning about. What's our gut tell us? What are our lived experiences of this? And now he has data to back it. I think as soon as we loop in Alaska into this study, we have the data to back it because we know it's real. And I do really think it's an outsized role, meaning that we have that whole list of who goes to construction, who goes to these other areas, and all that stuff. Sure, it, it is important, but if we laser focus on that water workforce element of it, we have it. We have an impact on climate too. I think it, it doesn't just make a healthy business. It doesn't just make your healthy, you know, ski area it changes everything. It can change everything. And that's why I like to focus on that thinking that that's outsized role. Cause it's, it moves the lever a little more.
5: Yeah. I think that's a great perspective on that. Um, so let's zoom out just a little bit. Cause I know that, um, there's a lot of, like, like you said, there's a, a lot of inflammatory divisive sort of talk out there. And I think probably what that boils down to is And maybe some of us can't admit it, but we're scared. It's scary. It's intense. (laughs) This is an intense time to be on the planet witnessing all of these changes. And um, sometimes we have to actually see it and experience it ourselves to make it real and to take action, which is unfortunate, but a very human thing. But I wonder if you want to kind of add, paint the picture a little bit more, some of the things that are, without completely putting everyone into a full-on depression, obviously, but... um, what what are we what are, what else are we talking about here? Like who what are we already seeing? Who's being affected? What do we need to be on the lookout for? What are people not understanding about what's happening?
0: Yeah, I feel like both Nick and I um, can speak to this, uh, and honestly, everyone in this room can speak to this too, because this is a deeply human. It unites us all. You know, people have said to me like, "Well, why did you're a climate scientist? Like, why did you have a kid?" Like, there are really, really harmful narratives out there about, you know, w- how our actions reveal how bankrupt we are, you know. But I want to remember and remind all of us, like, I'm, you know, I'm going to turn 40 this year. I, um... Me too. Oh, what the heck? Yeah. Oh, wait, Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> It was like, but for everyone who's above me in generations, everyone in this room was born into a planet that was changing. We were all born into this trajectory. And while the ideas of climate science and climate change have been much more prominent in the last 10 to 15 years, all of our lives have been marking changes in the climate system and in the ecological system. And so we are the generation that is spanning that gap between a worldview prior to understanding climate change and. then a worldview through and into climate change, a climate changed world. So, you know, there's a lot on the line and it really matters what we do. We have to do it together. And the, the innovation in this room, you know, we tell kids, be creative, learn new things. We stop that language with adults at like age 16, 17, but everyone in this room is going to have to be creative and learn new things in a climate changed future. There's just no way around it. But the thing about creativity and ingenuity and the ability to be in solidarity with one another is that we can do very great things together and we can stand up together against some of the most harmful and damaging worldviews and economic systems on the face of the planet. And I think that that actually is a future that sounds pretty damn good to me. Like, I would love to live in an equitable, safe, loving and caring community that really, really stewards and values the natural world for access for everyone. And that to target that as a goal, that feels really, really in line with the value system of the communities that I, I share. Well said. Me too.
1: Yeah, I agree with everything you said. Um, You know, and I I think it is an exciting time to be alive, actually, because our our decisions really do matter a lot. And I think, you know, the narrative that I find very discouraging is, you know, oh, you know, everything's hopeless, everything's terrible. And I I don't think that's true. You know, I think that, that there's a lot we can do, actually, to make the future better than it could be if we stay on the path that we're on. Um, I was actually just thinking about, you know, I'm teaching a class right now. It's, I think, week four or week five. We have a midterm coming up. There are, you know, students who haven't been doing very much um, in my class. And so I'm getting these emails like, oh, man, like freaking out. You know, can I still pass this class? And, you know, it's not as easy as it would have been, you know, if you had started doing stuff in week one. But yes, you know, if you work hard, you can still do it. And you know, it's an imperfect analogy, maybe, but you know, we can still pass, right? We can still we can still get a B, right? A the possibility of an A is probably foreclosed. But um <laughs> but, you know, we can you know we don't we don't have to fail, right? And it, a lot depends just on what we do, you know, over the next you know, a few years and, and, few, and few decades. And there's a lot that, that has been happening that's actually encouraging, right? Um, you know, the, the development of renewable energy, um, the decommissioning of coal, of coal plants, um, the decline in fossil fuel usage, at least within the United States, you know, the the electrification of the transportation sector, all this is happening, you know, pretty quickly. And we haven't even really done that much, you know, at the federal level to to try to spur these things along. So if we can then get some more political energy behind it, then then I think we can really accelerate things. But there's a lot we can do at the individual level too. And I don't want to um, make it seem like you know this is all about what the politicians. Do, right? I think this is, is really important. Mm-hmm. A, a mm-hmm. lot of
5: people don't realize that, like, uh, for example, creatives—the creatives—make a larger contribution to our economy than the coal than coal production. So, like, comedians and artists, and you know, and this is like something you don't hear said, but it, there's data to support it. So that's a, to me, that's really hopeful. Like, that's really exciting.
4: The, the ski area workforce is bigger than that. Exactly. Just ski area employees exactly. are bigger than coal.
5: Yeah. So. Why not turn towards that, right, Adrian? Uh,
3: I want to comment on the narratives part. So I do PR for NSAA as well, and kind of speak for the industry as a as a whole at times. And so climate's the number one thing. That's the number one question I get. It's not about um, lift upgrades. It's not about growth or the Olympics. It's it's about climate. And it's what are you doing because skiing is dying, or worse, skiing's already dead. And that narrative sucks because one, I don't want to take away like the one thing that's made me smile over this whole pandemic, right? Like, this, Amen. Right? This is, it's its our favorite thing. We're, we're doing it because we love it, right? We've met so many cool people out on the mountain or on the river. The industry is, look, you're all here. This is a record year. You know, our data at NSAA shows because you are all resilient and you figured out better ways to manage your operations with less, that the ski industry is healthy. It really is. People were coming out like mad during the pandemic, you know, more than we thought would happen. And operators were optimistic. And now, look, we all have like the season to season challenges for sure. I don't want to downplay that. But one of the hardest things I think there is to do is to look at something that people think is already dying and to try to save it, because it seems hopeless. So know that overall, nationally, like, we're doing good. And that's, that's this message you have to keep. And granted, we may not get the A in 2050, but I'm, I'm often asked, well, what does your world look like without skiing? And I'm like, it doesn't. Like, I'm not, I'm not willing to do that. I'm willing to, like, Be disappointed, but keep trying, right? When you're working with people to be more sustainable than
5: to imagine a world without my favorite thing and my favorite people in it. I appreciate that so much because uh, like we pointed out earlier, even if you aren't a skier or a snowboarder or an outdoor recreation person, but you live in a community where that's important, it affects all your friends, So I can get on board with that and I can fight for that with you.
4: Nick Nick just made me think of something. The journey I've been on since like December in meeting people and like trying to figure out how do we talk about this. Um, And it's not here today, but great inroads for more conversations as we get down the road. Um, Someone from Global Ocean Health uh, from Oceana. Dr. Matthew Sturm, who's on our podcast and has a cool exhibit in Portland. Like all these people I've been talking with. And I think that's how I got pointed to you. And one of those uh, conversations was never in civilization, in human history, have we been equipped to be able to solve the problem. Like even if we identified this, we haven't had the technology, we haven't had the communication networks, we haven't had the, the actual ability um, to actually address this. And so it's, this, it's a monumental like, point in anthropologically Never until now has this even been something we could have solved.
2: So, can we talk about some of the things that we we can do? Well, Gwen, you took the microphone right out of my hands.
5: Actually, <laughs> <like> <laughs> and it, it, it does feel like the right place to go next. I mean, first of all, Jordan, you making that last statement in that jacket is very impactful. It, it's just extra flair, and I really appreciate it. It's but like um, water. But I think that this is really helpful, Gwen. To your point, like. What are you all doing? And and please feel free to contribute your own personal values and what that conversation looks like for you, for your teams, for your
2: families, for your friends as well. Matt, can you pull up the picture with Matt Shuckston, please? So this is a a couple things we're doing at Mount Baker which i you know it's an it's truly an uphill deal right i get it and like i mentioned before we're 100% off the grid so we're highly reliant on fossil fuel energy however we're laying infrastructure right now in place to be able to convert to renewable yeah. And we've put practices in place for years, from reclaiming heat uh, from our generators to heat lodges to a variety of things that we do um, to be as mindful as we can, but also practical. I mean, you know, we still gotta we still gotta plow the lots like that's the reality. Um, but we're working towards that. And in addition. We're doing things like this, which is snow school. There's 700 kids. This is not a ski or snowboard program. This is a program where kids, we work with Northwest uh, NWAC and uh, Western Washington University, and we host about 700 kids, between three and 700 kids a year, come up on snowshoes, and they stand under Mount Shuxon. If you go back to Mount Shuxon one more, that'd be great, because where else in the world can you go from the Salish Sea, drive along the Nooksack River to the headwaters, a hanging glacier there on Mount Shuxon, which is slightly smaller than it used to be, but not a lot. Um, And that's the headwaters of the Nooksack River. So these kids are coming up and studying snowpack and actually seeing the watershed and understanding how the system works. Because they will also be the stewards and they'll also be the skiers and snowboarders who come up here and understand how the system is, right, and works. They're also studying snow algae. So you all have seen maybe the watermelon snow, they call it in the springtime. Occasionally we get these blooms on the snow. Well, that snow algae is, uh, the, these kids are doing citizen science with studying um, how much of it exists at certain times at the ski area. And that may be an indicator of climate changes and things like that that we'll be able to track from different places around the world. And side note, snow algae is bizarre. It actually lives on the ground. The algae grows a tail and swims through the snowpack to the surface and then metamorphosizes essentially in blooms. Algae. <laughs> Who knew? Had no idea. Anyway, I'm sure, I'm sure wellness um, people will find a use for it. So right. just so time. anyway, at the skier, you you know, just promoting the next generation getting involved and in interacting with the snowpack in terms of doing citizen science, in terms of learning what uh, you know what the mountains are to the watershed and the agriculture and all that is part of as part of what we're doing. On a side note, I will also say that I was just speaking with someone with from a couple guys from SE about capacity. You know, capacities is a big consideration here in our industry in the next years. As more people become attached to nature, which is a really good thing, right? That's the point. That's what we're in the nature. We're in the business of keeping people connected to nature. Um, however. Back in the day, and when I'm looking at our 1989 master plan, it used to be 2.8 people per car vehicle is what you could count on for capacity. We had to shift that to like 2.5. And now we are more like one point something. So all these sprinter vans and all these people wanting flexibility to come up and shred pow until noon and then go home for the rest of the day and all these kind of things. The reality is a lot of our capacities, a lot of people are driving more vehicles. So what we can do to help promote carpooling and more efficient use of transportation will serve all all of our needs in terms of creating more access, less parking. Also an issue these days, right? For the very reason we're discussing here. But all of that plays into other ways that we can extend out into the community for positive. Um, on a side note, I will say too, that, uh, we ask our food and Bev, thanks, shout out to our food and bed department. And a lot of our crew over here who does a real good job of, um, watching our con- consumables. We have all compostable biodegradable products. We have grass fed beef. Uh, we make choices on the menu items that we serve that hopefully are contributing in some small way, but it's all the little things that add up. Um, I personally live in Locally bread, I believe you said. That? Oh, whole baked bread. Yeah, we stopped bread. Right. Yeah, a while ago, um, you know, we used to ship from one of the food service providers, right, from a ways away. And uh, I started. we started sourcing local, and I walked down to one of our local bakeries, and I said, so do you think you could make 30,000 burger buns? <laughs> and um, sure enough. And so a lot of our... Typical food products are sourced uh, locally now, so that we don't have to truck them from so far.
4: Is it yeah. Avenue Bread?
2: What's that? Avenue, Avenue Bre- Bread, <laughs> Avenue Bread, and Bread Farm. I mean, and you know, support. It's it's the whole sustainable economy idea as well in play. And I'll just add real quick that yeah. And on a side note, I live in 800 square feet, um, and just did a remodel on my house, and I spent a year collecting wood to do it all with reclaimed wood. So it all takes work, no question. Not perfect. Um, uh, but it's steps. Mm, It is a process. Yeah. It's important to remind us. Yeah. Uh,
4: I feel like I should put on the association hat. Maybe for both of us again. (laughs) Sure. Um, government affairs side, right. And it's not, this isn't a silver bullet, but I mean, everybody, if you're not aware, should be aware. Um, the government advocacy side, there's legislation, some fixes that could be some part of this and it's can be divisive. Uh, but carbon pricing is, is something that a lot of outdoor rec and a lot of the ski industry has been behind. And when we have opportunities, that's something we'll continue to talk about is maybe that that's a portion of what this could be. So the association puts our stamp on that. We write letters, we go to DC and stuff and stamp that. You can- yeah, And I want to be
3: clear it's bipartisan, right? Because I mean, we speak to both sides of the aisle because you can't get anything done with just one party. And you know, the, the, the people you speak with, everyone's gonna have a different hook. So if if already like, you know, you're not bleeding heart over this issue because you're scared for the future, right? Well, hit them in the wallet and tell them how much you bring to the community, and that if your season is shortened by X number of days because of climate change, like this is the money we lose, yeah. and that gets some people in Washington to listen because once they realize that like jobs might be in danger, right, or um, revenue that can make a difference. So you got to tailor your message, but you got to bring everyone in.
0: I would add to that um, national security and military readiness are key components of... um, climate planning so the most conservative components of our government that are non-elected are very aware of the risks entailed from climate warming and destabilization geopolitically and ecologically and environmentally or um energy system wise so you know we 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 receive these narratives that partition the alignment of climate action across divides but if you look beyond that in it in a curious framework you will see very very conservative components of our society, the insurance industry, particularly very aware of the risks associated with unchecked climate warming and at the table to make decisions for decarbonization, for energy efficiency and for green energy transitions. So this is a much, much more complex issue than is often narrated at the the flashy, you know, scrolls of your social media and your takes from your weird uncle Al. (laughs) like and 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 I think that's a really important like it's important to think complexly and like Nick and I were talking about like covid and climate over lunch and how so often we see narratives given to people that simplify information in order to do the the best or do the least harm, right? But we're all living very complex lives. Like just managing a 401k is a hard thing. Like that's a complex task. Like finding a primary, doing (laughs) your taxes is so
5: hard. Way harder than it needs to
0: be. We're all doing really complex things. The idea that you all need a simple narrative about climate change is really just disrespectful. It's just in the same way that you need a simple narrative about COVID, like, no, you don't. You need actually information that you can use to make decisions that can help you, your business, your community, your family, your uh, all the things that you care about navigate this moment in time. Um, that's my soapbox.
5: I like your soapbox a lot. I think it's nice. It's complex. It's complex. Yeah. It's complex.
1: Where <laughs> Yale runs this survey. I don't, I don't know if they do it every year, but the, the they do it quarterly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, frequently. Yes, frequently. Um, uh, asking you know Americans their views on climate change, and it's actually quite encouraging if you look at these results. The large majority of Americans believe that climate change is real. A large majority believes that humans are contributing to it. Um, Um, where the percentages drop below 50% um, is when you ask, you know, do you believe climate change is affecting you or do you think it's going to affect you personally? And that's where people are like, eh, maybe maybe not. Um, So I think just talking about, you know, ways in which climate is affecting people's lives, affecting the ski area, for example, is one way that we can sort of help to rally support around this issue, right? Because it, it really is affecting all of us. A lot of us... You know, in the sort of year to year or even month to month variability of weather, we sort of forget. You know, or maybe we're not old enough actually to remember what things were like. You know, 20 or 30 years ago. But there, there, you know, are significant trends in you know, in a lot of you know climate variables, namely temperature, right? Um, and those those are very real, and they're having an effect on on our weather and on our extreme weather. Um, and, and I think these are people. Th- these are things that a lot of people recognize, but we need to be talking about more.
0: I had just one more thing, like, okay, you have all these different legislative and policy making avenues for change you have carbon fees, you have a price on carbon, you have um, uh, approaches for um, decommissioning coal plants, you have transition, uh, energy transition plans for residential and for transportation. And, People select, I like that solution, but not those solutions. They're like, I'll take that one, but I'll take the cherry ice cream, but like, I don't want the chocolate ice cream. And that kind of picking and choosing of like, I want this one, but not that one. That kind of thinking is actually can be really problematic because we are gonna be at this table next year talking about climate solutions and decarbonization and the next year and the next year and the next year and the next year. This is never going away. And so the idea that we can just pick one simple thing and do it and be done is not actually understanding that we have changed the very nature of the entirety of the surface of the planet forever. And the world that we grew up in is gone. And we have the responsibility of stewarding for the generations in front of us a, an equitable, a safe and beautiful future. And that challenge will be here next time this meeting happens next year. And the, t- the options that are going to be on that table will be more ambitious, more creative, and will be more challenging for potentially our worldviews that will, if we just keep things the same, we'll we'll be okay. We have the opportunity to look at change in the face and say, yeah, we do need to change. And we're going to change in these directions right now. And then we're going to ratchet that up and we're going to change in these directions on an annual basis. So that level of like flexible thinking is really important in this Mm. space thinking about how you're going to come to the table with increased capacity for flexibility, for creativity and for including new voices and new ideas on the table is exactly what climate solutions look like.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think you know, each of us kind of has our own, you know, sort of way that if we were, you know, king of the world, we would solve this problem in this particular way. But that fixation on these particular solutions, I think can be actually counterproductive, right? And we need to, you know, come to the table with our own ideas, but also be open to to ideas from people who actually are from a very different place, right, politically and and otherwise. I, I have a new toy that I like. I have
4: a dad wagon, a rad power wagon, electric bike that, that look is so cool. I don't think I'm non-pedaling my way into saving the planet. It's non-maintenance. It's really fun to ride. I have another idea. I'm just thinking of this, and I wasn't going to say this today, but I'm going to. So, a lot of a lot of the association's job is to drive awareness and like really see industry has a voice in this. The water workforce has a voice in this. Have you guys heard of the race to Alaska? Anybody? Human powered, non-motorized race from. Port towns Washington to catch Can Alaska. I would put together a PNSAA team if five of you would join me and we would take a motorless race. It's it's paddling, it's peddling who's got a sailboat, like, I would figure that out. And that could be a really cool awareness campaign. Um, and i and like, do it. i totally do it. Let's cool. grab a patroller. We need some first aid for sure. Episode. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. A couple episodes. I need, like, a, I think around. I'd, like, a, someone at f we need a good cook. If you also have a good punk rock playlist, that's needed. Um, <laughs> it, there's your travel <laughs> sea snacks. training plan. <laughs>
5: All right, we're putting something together here. Uh, yeah, I... I any other? Um, oh, actually, I feel like maybe Adrian now would be a good time to talk about the NSAA sustainable yeah. slopes. Will do. Okay, let's can, do that. Can You pull up my
3: uh, semi-boring slide with the diamonds. There we go. All right. So, like, here's here's the the bad news. Right? Is like climate is this big gi- giant issue affecting literally the entire planet and every human on it, and it seems insurmountable. Right? And the good news is, it's really not. <laughs> because you have to break it down. You've gotta break it down into sections or you're gonna drive yourself totally mad trying to figure out where to start. And that's the other thing. You can start because other folks, if you haven't started yet, other folks have done it before you. And what's really awesome about this industry is it's super collaborative. Cause this isn't stealing a pass holder, right? Like if, if, if our temperature's warm, we all lose. So it's, it's not like you're cannibalizing business or anything like that. So folks are really willing to talk about their successes and their challenges. And when you guys get together, it gives you a lot more power when you're trying to make some of these solutions happen, whether that's with your local utility or it's with um, your elected officials. So you can get started and you have resources. And one of them is NSAA's Sustainable Slopes program. So what this is is a framework. Because all your ski areas have their unique personalities and operating realities, and we get that. Not every climate solution is going to work for everyone in this room. So we've got 10 different topic areas, um, one of which is advocacy, because that really matters in the broad scale of things. But the one I want to focus on is is water, right? Because that's kind of the theme of this whole conference, but For all those 10 topic areas, you can get every single department at your ski area involved. And that's also what's really cool, because everyone's got a stake in the game. But with water, you know, we want to keep it clean. We want to use it wisely. If you have snowmaking or bathrooms uh, or faucets, you know that you use water in your operation, F and B. But it's about using it better and trying to kind of return it how you found it. You know, um, and make sure that you are that you're understanding your usage, right? So I'm always like, if you can bring in someone to audit your resource usage or you've got metering, you gotta know where you're starting from. You have to have a benchmark. And then you can implement things like more efficient irrigation, um, depending on if you have that outside. Um, Upgrading your snowmaking equipment, if you've got that to something that is automated and less resource intensive. Dealing with runoff and flood management, right? Like that's another big part, especially here and in the the Midwest, that's where you're seeing a lot of the climate impacts are in the flooding. So how can you build out your infrastructure to manage that better? And we've got solutions for each kind of ski area. And your partners here can help walk you through some of what they've done also. So when you, when you apply for these badges, right, those pretty diamonds out there, the whole goal of that is to let people know, your guests know, this is what we're doing. And it's also to keep yourselves accountable. But man, if you can inspire your guests who come, that's, that's huge, even if they, they make a little change. So that's why we wanted to have something that was like really forward facing and really attention grabbing.
2: I'll add to that that it's it's a real reality that we're all just trying to keep our businesses going here and that a lot of these things are really expensive. I mean, the infrastructure we're looking at this summer is multi-million dollars, yeah. you know, and that's no joke. And, and so integrating it with things that you truly believe are going to enhance the operation as well, right? Enhance the operation, become more efficient. And then there's a step that you take that is like... And it's for the greater good. Mm -hmm. And can we financially make this a reality and integrate it in a way that we can still charge reasonable prices for food and bev and still, you know, get snowcat work done and the grooming that we need to do and things like that. But I appreciate that it is not as simple as going after a batch and it's not as simple as that interface of like it's only about the bottom line. (laughs) Because, you know, in the decision making process here, the bottom line and finances, yes, we're all responsible for that, especially to keep our businesses going. But at some point, there's this other level of decision making that comes into play, how we start to become better at that justify it you know in our businesses is really in my in my experience anyway the greatest challenge
5: absolutely yeah I think that's a
2: huge huge point huge and where point. are those grants anyway where are those where, is, yeah, where can I'm government finding. go where is this is how you know where how can we have like in this bridging time it's like there's this awkward phase where I feel like our industry is willing and ready and our customers and our guests mm-hmm. are willing and ready and like and yet there's this financial reality of making that transition either to technologies that were not really tried and true or real trusted or just that the expense of it because we're on the front of it and that's tough
3: and that's where like e- equity of it all comes in because a lot of these projects like well we i'm gonna solve my offsets by throwing money at it right and that's not always the way to go and and it's Climate solutions should be available not just to the people who can afford them,
2: and to small, small and mid-sized ski areas, which Absolutely. I will speak a bit here, are the ones who are often willing. Our communities are very supportive of this, but man, it's you know it's financially impactful, and our economy in general is just not made that shift. You look at the realities of our economy, fossil fuel-driven economy, and we're in this really awkward phase between the desire, the understanding, finally got into some understanding, the desire to then actually shifting to action and doing so in a way that doesn't sink our economy or our businesses. And I know I'm like just maybe verbalizing the thing that everybody is like, I mean, we all get a little bit paralyzed by that, but how you get beyond it becomes the creativity. I think that's the creative piece. I would say to everyone here
0: knows about operations. You know how to take a plan and execute it. And like a lot of this stuff where the rubber hits the road is operations. It's making shit happen in a very technical and proficient manner. And there's a lot of skills in this room that can absolutely deliver on that particular aspect of this issue. So looking at the skill set that you bring as an employee, as an owner, as a, you know, as an engineer, as an operator, like all of that is hyper relevant to the tasks at hand for managing the risks and opportunities associated with
4: climate change. We're risk managers. That's what the job is. Yeah. Like we are the best industry. We kick butt at risk managing. And that's that's all this is.
3: And you know, you don't have to be an expert or a scientist to get involved in this. It is extremely helpful to have friends who are. <laughs> but like, I majored in history. Like, I'm a humanities person. And I I can still talk about climate because I can talk about, I find the thing I care about, right? winter, um, outdoor recreation. And that's the thing I follow and that's the thing I grab on. Um, I I don't, I can say here, I can point to science, right? Like I can tell people just Google it because it's there for them. I'm not here to refute that, but I'm here to, to protect the things that I care about. So if you're passionate about these things, right? You are a climate advocate. You don't have to know all of the percentages and the numbers, but if you want to save something and keep having this conversation with those like-minded people. And then you can tap the scientists and use your creative minds and your operational minds and find those
2: solutions. And I will add that every one of us in this room today who's involved in the industry is already doing a huge thing. We are keeping people connected to nature.
0: We are keeping people
2: connected to the snow. So if we do nothing else and we can try and do that more responsibly, that's a really big deal. But just bringing them up to these places where they see the hanging glacier, where they see the snowpack vary, where they experience the different winds on a different day or whatever, that is big. So thank you all for just being in this industry to make that happen. There's not a lot of places in this world that people enjoy it so much. And it is so meaningful, and they get that it's an important part of their life. So if we're yeah. doing nothing else, <laughs> check mark. Well said.
5: <laughs> I want to give an opportunity. If there are any questions in the audience uh, for any of our panelists today, um,
4: there's a hand up there. Oh yes. look, I got a shiny coat and a microphone.
2: Okay. <laughs> he gets to get. Oh,
4: okay. She doesn't want the mic.
2: Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I researched the NSA sustainability stuff. Yeah. Where
5: so when you're a really small operation, yeah. where do you start?
3: Yeah. So um, the thing where I think just without knowing more every operation is getting your employees on board mm-hmm. and and also finding out what partnerships might be available in your local community to do maybe some outreach or education. Because if you can, it's like building a culture of safety, right? It's every day when we show up and there's an ROI associated with safety. There's also an ROI associated with more sustainable practices. So if you can build that into your culture, that is, that is great. And we can talk more about some simpler solutions and also like finding a, a comparable ski area to yours somewhere in the US that might be able to help you guys along. But yeah, start with your people. Cause you might also have someone on staff who like has a connection or has a real passion for something and will want to take it on, look for grants. And also you all elected people. You can all write letters, speak with them. You're business leaders, even if you have a small, you are business leaders in this community.
5: <laughs> Any other?
3: Yes.
4: I'm on. I'm Um, I'd like to maybe hear from our climatologist on his take, if you will, of this uh, heat bubble. that everybody remembers. It was 116 in Portland. Was that a result of climate change? It was kind of hard to hear that question about the heat dome that hit the Northwest in the summer of 2021.
1: That was a case of just really high pressure, um, staying in place, and and that brings heat waves. Um, that's not, the heat waves themselves are not that uncommon. They are pretty uncommon that time of year, in June. But this particular heat wave was so far off the charts um, that it was probably the, the single most anomalous weather event um, in recorded history anywhere in the world, actually. And, um, it was so unusual that we can't actually get climate models to produce anything like that, um, even with, you know, temperatures as they are. Right. So the, there was a study done shortly afterward um, and they you know concluded that it was made, I think, 150 times more likely by climate change. But even even still, you know, um, our climate models would suggest that this is this was like a one in thousand year event, even with climate change. So um, there's a lot about it that we don't know. Um, the fact that our climate models can't produce something like this at that time of year, you know, suggests that that there is an aspect of global weirding, you know, that we don't actually understand. That there are you know dynamical changes. Perhaps related to the weakening of the radial temperature gradient, the fact that the, the Arctic is warming much faster than the poles are. And you know, the, the, the reasons for that are something we actually do understand pretty well. But the impact of that on you know the jet stream and how that impacts our weather is something we don't mm-hmm. understand as well. One factor that very likely did contribute to it um, was the, the record dry spring that we had. April was the driest April that we've had on, on record in the Pacific Northwest, um, at least in Oregon. Um, and you know, just like our bodies sweat and, and cool us off on a hot day, the presence of moisture in the ground and in the vegetation is able to evaporate. That cools off the land surface. Usually, the end of June, we still have a lot of moisture available to evaporate and to, and to cool us down, You know, even if a high-pressure event like that were to occur. Last year, we didn't have that. So that certainly exacerbated it, um, but there's a lot we, we still don't understand.
4: If you speak to warming sea ocean temperatures and how that relates to dissolved CO2 and how that then drives uh, Albedo, with in terms of
1: uh, snowpack melting. You know, the, the ocean is absorbing almost 100% of the of the heat that the climate system is absorbing. The atmosphere, the temperature of the atmosphere, is ultimately controlled by the ocean, and so the rate of warming in the atmosphere is controlled by the rate really at which the ocean warms. So, um, the the absorption of CO2 by the ocean is kind of a separate issue. Um, the ocean is absorbing CO2 but at a slower rate really than it's absorbing the additional heat. Um, but as the ocean warms, its ability to take up carbon actually decreases. So right now the fact that it's you know taking a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere is bad for ocean health because it's acidifying the ocean, but it is slowing down the rate of, of warming. Um, but as the ocean warms, the solubility of CO2 in the ocean water decreases and and it will eventually stop taking up carbon at the, at the rate that it is. Um, so temperature and CO2 are related, but it's not so much the CO2 within the ocean that's causing the warming. It's the fact that CO2 in the atmosphere, as Sarah said, is, is, is preventing the earth from radiating the heat back to space as it would. Um, and so we're, we're building up heat and most of that heat's going into the ocean.
4: What does it feel like when you work OT? and you go on a real hot streak of working a lot of OT. Are you maybe as effective at the end? You're pretty tired. The ocean is working OT. We're making the ocean Mm -hmm. in overtime mode right now.
2: I have one quick question for Sarah. Can you talk about like, at one point in our conversation, we also talked about how, uh, so El Nino, La Nina is currents. So that temperature affects the currents in the ocean to some degree. Okay, what about the deep water current as it relates to climate?
0: Well, there's a there is a, a current that moves through the entire global ocean called the thermohaline circulation, which is driven by the sinking of waters from the North Atlantic and around Antarctic. And these waters move through on this conveyor belt through the deep ocean, moving carbon and salts around the planet. And it is the waters that are bubbling up along the the um the edge of uh, the Pacific edge of North America, the waters that are upwelling into this um, coastal ecosystem, those waters are about a thousand years old, meaning that they haven't seen the atmosphere in a thousand years. So one of the ways that the the ocean regulates temperature and carbon and and the movement of nutrients is through these very old and long-term currents that are also impacted by climate warming. Because there are places in the global ocean where deep water has been forming for millennia. And when those areas warm, the water doesn't become dense enough. It doesn't become cold enough and salty enough. To sink down to the sea floor. It <laughs> freshens too. That's a good point as well. So there are components of the Earth system that are altered by climate change that are that many of us have not been exposed to because it didn't come with a like a geology class in your, your undergrad. It definitely didn't come in high school education, but it also is like really, really cool and really amazing component of how the Earth system functions. That is a component of the of the climate story itself. Um, and I think that that is is part of what like Gwen's kind of curiosity as well, thinking about these longer, older, deeper currents that relate to the way that heat and carbon move around the planet.
5: We actually do have to wrap and I and I do want to send us off on on a note from you. You were, when we spoke on the phone, you were so good at encouraging us to continue making those small efforts and that those things really do make a big difference. And I yeah. wonder if you might just share some of your wisdom on that topic
0: to close. Sure, I... Um so very briefly, I'm a bad feminist. I'm not a good feminist. I'm a very bad feminist. And what, but f- a feminist lens is also a lens about about power and control. It's a lens about repair. It's a lens about understanding our roles in the world. And it's a lens that I use to th- to think about how the culture responds to me. And sometimes when the culture tells you, like, it, largely, it says, don't even try. Like, It's not worth your time. It's too small of a thing to make a difference. That response, when you receive that, that is a place to get really, really curious about. Because, for example, if the culture around Gwen had said it's not worth it to get those, you know, grass fed beef patties and it's not worth it to buy the recyclables and it's not worth it to have conversations about energy efficiency and it's not worth it to have this culture work done at your organization the loss of that would be staggering for not just Wacom County, but all of Washington state. And instead of receiving that message and saying, it's not, it's not worth your time. It's too small to make a difference. That is the place to get very, very curious about actually pushing forward through that moment and saying, you know what? I actually do care about this very small thing because I'm just a person and I'm going to make an impact on this very small thing because I can and everyone has access to that moment in in relationship, in the way you lead, in your organization, in the way you think about your industry and your business. And pushing through that narrative is where the most catalytic change is available. Not believing the lie that it's not worth it is at the core of this whole conversation because it is fun, it is absolutely worth it for all of you that have kids and communities and neighbors that call upon you like this is really a time to like step over the threshold and be activated and be brave and to show courage in the face of uncertainty so welcome <laughs> welcome to it and uh, and i really hope that you all push through those moments where it seems like it's not worth it because it absolutely is
5: adrian jordan dr sarah nick gwen such an honor thank you so much
2: thank you thank you jordan for the idea thanks,
4: thanks. thank you everybody I don't even know what else to say. There's not much more to say. That was so just info heavy and important. And I love it. It's the water workforce. It's, it's climate advocacy. It's skiing. It's really perhaps shifting a mindset to think about our climate advocacy efforts focusing on ocean health and our watersheds. And if those are healthy, the byproduct is going to be good snowpack and a healthy workforce. Let's protect our plankton, people. Hey, if you want to hear even more about this, I'm not going to edit it yet unless one of you reaches out to me and says, yes, drop a bonus episode. Because the whole year leading up to that recording, we recorded so many Zoom calls, so many conversations to prepare for this. And all it would take is for me to sit in the editing bay, clean that up a little bit and drop it for you. But I'm only going to do it if you ask, because I also have a whole slew of other things that we're going to be cranking out on the pod here as the winter Goes on. Remember, you can be part of this. If you work at a ski area in the Northwest, this podcast is yours, and you can develop your own episode. You can develop your own little correspondence piece. You can tell us about your job. You can also tell me if you want to edit up those planning calls. You can do that by emailing podcast at PNSAA.org or even just send me a text at 877 533 five five two zero let's get it done if you haven't already make sure you subscribe so the next episode pops up on your feed and we'll see you next time when we all learn more about how the mountain works
0: So there are components of the earth system that are altered by climate change that many of us have not been exposed to because it didn't come with a, like a geology class in your your undergrad. It definitely didn't come in high school education, but it also is like really, really cool. I'm